in the current environment, you do need the strength of, of research platforms. And if you're talking about alpha versus beta, then you do need to have the resources to deliver that, right? And so once you start looking for alternatives to your traditional fixed income approach, then you need to, to start thinking about obviously potential capital loss and, and therefore potential mitigants to risk. So the key to it is obviously flexibility to navigate the current market. But in order to do that, you obviously need to have a certain amount of discipline because otherwise you can get quite carried away. And ultimately, we live in a very levered world. So you can't lose sight of some of the bottoms up that you need to do as you explore new assets and you go into illiquid assets or you go into volatility trade. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Pilar Gomez-Bravo. She is the Director of Fixed Income at MFS. This conversation is a fascinating one as we dive into the, the world of fixed income markets. We talk about the paradigm shift that we're seeing. We talk about the transition from monetary to fiscal dominance, the concerns around inflation, the role of fixed income and the need to be more defensive. How much liquidity do you need? Can your fixed income really play the ballast to equities that people expect? We talk about the real challenge about finding the right tenor for your fixed income um, components, particularly at a time when there is such a dispersion in returns globally around fixed income markets. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. When you think about flexibility in the current market today, is the flexibility that you need to have or for investors that they need to have is because we're at such low interest rates, that convexity issue that investors are facing means that they can't just basically do the old school approach of fundamental analysis, buy and hold fixed income or credit. Yeah, I mean, I think traditionally, whilst we talk about fixed income as an asset class, there's obviously many flavors of, of fixed income, uh, you know, from credit to rates to more structured uh, elements or private debt. So it's a catch-all, although obviously you can go in many different directions. I think that we live in a world of financial repression, obviously. So, you know, central banks have been forcing volatility down in asset classes and with relatively high valuations in most asset classes, then that just means that you have to be a lot more flexible to generate the returns that you would normally expect to be generating. Now, it's interesting because traditionally, uh, asset owners have uh, been much more flexible in their equity approach, right? So for many years, they've been going into global equities. Uh, but what you do find is naturally a tendency for veering towards domestic fixed income markets rather than global for most institutional investors in each market. And I think that now, maybe with the current environment of very low yield, very repressed markets that it behooves uh, generally investors to follow what they did with equities you know quite a long time ago and start looking more globally and more flexibly because that means that they're probably more likely to hit those targets that they have for for returns or even defensiveness of uh, fixed income if they do have a broader universe to go into a bigger playground let's call it is that flexibility also now available because it's much easier to get hedging yes and uh, the whole FX hedging, component is very important, obviously, because domestic investors will obviously, not a lot of them are really allowed to to take naked FX risk uh, most of the time by their regulators. So the one thing to note is that with 
low, the front end of most uh, government bond markets anchored at very low levels with most central banks uh, still being very accommodative. That means that your your hedging costs are going to be low, right? So you're, you're, as you point out, your FX hedging becomes easier because the anchor at the front end makes it a little bit easier to understand kind of obviously when you're rolling three months forward, what the costs are going to be. So it is now even more interesting potentially going global just because for the foreseeable future, you're going to have those front-end parts of the different markets anchored at very low levels and very close to each other, which means that hedging becomes certainly easier and at least the anticipation of the yield that you're getting becomes more stable. It's interesting that about sort of three, three or four years ago, there was this real talk around global synchronization of growth. COVID happened and now there's been some very different levels of growth and inflation that you're seeing. Um, absolutely. Actually, I get very excited when I think about future dispersion across markets, because that, you know, as an active manager is what you want to see, that dispersion and volatility provides you with increased opportunities to find dislocations that can give you the alpha that you're seeking. So if you think about kind of what we've seen with regards to the pandemic, we obviously saw a, basically a global synchronized entry into fighting the effects of the pandemic, right? It's, I think it's the first time in maybe 100 years where all global economies lock down at the same time, right? You don't really have that where you're forcing economies to shut down at the same time. So pretty much the recipe to combat that was the same, right, across markets, so huge monetary interventions and big fiscal packages, right? So that global synchronized recovery that you mentioned before was matched again with a global synchronized approach to the near-term impacts of the pandemic. But now, now it's when it's getting interesting, right? Because now each country will have to exit um, this stage in very different manners. Not everybody is the US with the reserve, you know, the reserve currency and the dollar, right? Not everybody can spend 20% of GDP uh, you know, two or three years running. And certainly not everybody has the same political climate or political backing to undertake modern monetary theory or fiscal largesse. So I think that as we go into the second half of this year and next year, when we have a little bit more certainty of what this exit looks like from an economic perspective, i.e. the scarring impacts of, of pandemic and the social changes, right, the behavior changes, then I think you're going to start seeing different approaches to exiting the monetary and fiscal largesse that we've seen. And that's what's going to make a lot more interesting the global rates markets and the credit markets as well, right? So you're going to have to think about what you're getting paid for lending to different credits if defaults start increasing in some countries and not in others. So I think that as an active manager, the the potential alpha opportunities really kind of surpass what you might be getting from beta right now, given kind of where we are with regards to yields and spreads. Are we likely to see negative rates come back? Or we should we really be expecting much more fiscal packages, quasi-MMT style approaches that will really just drive interest rates higher? I mean, I think that it, for so long, we've lived with only one player in town, which was really the central banks, right? So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that you have a little bit more balance uh, with regards to fiscal intervention, certainly at this point where you really still have to do a lot of heavy lifting to fight the impact of, of the lockdowns and, and the virus, which is still there as we roll out the vaccine. So I think some fiscal is, is definitely necessary if you do want to close the output gaps that have been created. But, you know, again, I think that whether or not that leads us to have a predominance or have the fiscal overtake monetary policy where monetary policy becomes not, not independent effectively, which is kind of what MT is, I think that's a, a still a, a very 
big stretch. And again, obviously, we can talk about the U.S., but the U.S. stands clearly on its own with regards to this experiment. And I wouldn't even call it MMT there yet, uh, because that requires permanence of fiscal. And we haven't really seen that yet. We've obviously seen a stimulus that will impact this year and next year, but it's kind of unclear yet whether or not you're going to continue to see these levels of deficits year after year after year. So with regards to kind of where that leads us across countries and markets and negative rates, I do think that very few banks have said or said very tangibly that they will not go into negative rates. I think they've just said that they would rather not have to go to negative rates. And you saw the RBNZ, for example, where clearly the market was expecting them and they conducted analysis, just like the Bank of England, in order to introduce negative rates that they felt in the end that maybe they could get by without actually having to go negative. That doesn't mean that when the next recession comes around, they won't go to negative rates if they feel that that's what they need. I think they're just sort of trying to keep some tools in the toolbox in case in a couple of years or three years or four years, you start seeing economic growth waning and or maybe more instability with regards to financial asset prices. That means that they have to intervene earlier. So it's not off the table, but I do think that very few wanted to go down that road. And actually, in fact, what I find interesting, not just the negative rates, I think that if you look back 18 months ago, there was talk about negative rates or yield curve control, right? So clearly the RBA went down the path of yield curve control. They decided to pick the three-year instead of the 10-year like Japan, but very few banks actually followed, right? There was an understanding that maybe even the Fed would actually go into yield curve control. And you could argue that the ECB has implicit yield curve control, but certainly not explicit. So in fact, the RBA stands a little bit on its own with regards to anchoring the the three-year in Australian rates. And again, a, a lot of the challenge will be to communicate the exit, just like it's going to be for the U.S. communicate the exit of, of the QE program, certainly before we even see hikes in rates. It's interesting in the U.S., even, even there, there seems to be a little bit of concern about the amount of inflation that can come into the system. You know, there's a lot of talk around the infrastructure package and the ability for that to kick up the economy. But then we saw a new tax package to almost claw it back. So it, it does feel that they're being very careful. The fact that you're sort of accompanying the uh, infrastructure plan with a tax package already tells you that we're not in MMT, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't raise taxes. You just go out and borrow more, right? And have the central bank fund you. So that to me indicates that this expectation of modern monetary theory, even in the US, is really too kind of early to sort of claim that ground because, you know, when you have associated corporate tax packages or, or tax increases, then obviously you're worried about your fiscal position uh, down the road. I think inflation is obviously a, a very big topic and the replacement narrative has clearly won the day when you think about sort of the rates markets, but it really has been more of a, of a treasury-led, actually it's it's been a sort of synchronized move higher in yields led by, by treasuries really, because in, not all markets obviously have the same dynamics, even on the inflation side, obviously Europe is, is far way behind. So what's happening in the US is obviously the fiscal post the democratic wins and post the failed auction, right? At the end of February, really kind of that was the beginning of, of this big move in, in yields higher. So instead of really a taper tantrum, what you saw was kind of a fiscal tantrum, right, where people were worried about the fiscal and leading to higher inflation. So I think that there's definitely going to be transitory higher inflation, um, even after the base effects, because, you know, obviously with markets reopening, um, you're going to have pent up demand and excess savings that get put to work and supply constraints. The challenge, though, is to call for permanently higher inflation. And I think the Fed there is much more cautious, and we saw that in the minutes, with regards to really anticipating much higher reasons to see permanent inflation. So 
what do you need to see, right? What would sort of make you think? Because frankly, very few of us have lived through inflationary markets, right? Uh, I mean, for the last 30 years, what do you need to see or what is kind of central banks would like to see is really a permanence of higher wage growth that would trigger potential concerns of permanent inflationary pressures. Until you see that, it's very difficult for them to sort of call time out on their accommodative stance. So that's kind of, I think, what you need to look at. And that leads you to think about labor slack and employment in Australia. You know, what what are the impact of, uh, you know, what now that the job seeker allowance is finished, you're going to get that data in May, right? So the RBA in June will have to then start thinking about what the impact is on labor markets of, of pulling out of some of these fiscal stimulus or support mechanisms. So it's still going to take quite a bit of time. And yes, we'll see cyclical inflation pick up. But can we really argue that the decade-long inflationary structural components that lead to lower inflation are are gone, like demographics or technology or really the huge amount of debt? I think for, yes, yeah, cyclical inflation will go up and that is being reflected in break-evens, you know, in general. Seeing much higher levels of permanent inflation, that could tip over sort of risky asset markets, that could tip over uh, into a recession because the Fed then has to act more forcefully. I think it's way too early to call that. So the way that we think about it more is the base case hasn't really changed yet. But you know what you see with rates markets is that there is higher term premium and the term premium is reflecting higher uncertainty, which is all very fair because obviously this experiment with fiscal in the US is, is new. Whether that continues is, is less clear with regards to your inflationary expectations. And, and that's why we still think that inflation, higher, much much higher inflation expectations are still tail risks rather than a base case. The other problem with the inflation is that still the way it's being measured isn't capturing really asset prices. Uh, there's there's a lot of concerns that the inflation maybe is not showing up in the day-to-day, but it is now money's just flowing into some real speculative assets. You're absolutely right. Uh, obviously, with huge levels of liquidity, you know, that liquidity has to find a home, right? And so you end up having more speculative investments. That's why I was mentioning that you really need to be very conscious and a responsible investor because you can get carried away, right, with all, all the money sloshing around and, you know, all these new investment ideas. But at the end of the day, it turns to be a question around financial stability, right? So financial stability is something that the central banks will certainly look after, but I think that they're still happy and comfortable to sort of see risky assets and, you know, these esoteric, well, maybe not so esoteric anymore, uh, investment opportunities go higher because they are really much more focused on the real economy, as you sort of say, and in particular employment. And so they're happy to let things run hot because they don't necessarily see excesses being built yet. Now, of course, one of the key things as investors is sort of have your top of the market red flags list, right? Things that you see in the market that sort of start after many, many years being involved that you start sort of saying, uh-oh, you know, this, this looks like a bit of excessive sentiment. And you, one of the things that I would highlight is that in the current markets, even though you might sort of argue or not whether or not you're seeing exuberance in equities or in other parts of the markets, the reality is, is that these unknown unknowns have much bigger impacts because the market is much more fragile. And so what does that mean? That means that there's a lot of leverage out there in the system. And that means that idiosyncratic events can turn into systemic events quite quickly. And we saw that after the financial crisis with countries like Iceland or Ireland or Greece. You're seeing it now with the Archigos and you're seeing Greensill and you're seeing last March in when the COVID pandemic hit, levered hedge funds that were playing the off-the-run, on-the-run treasury market impact the liquidity in treasuries, right? So we don't know really kind of what's going to be out there 
but we do know that with higher leverage and these very easy fiscal financial conditions, that you're likely to have more of these events and they can turn systemic. So you, you do have to be careful. Um, you, but there is, you know, clearly for the next 12, 18 months, uh, this easing, this liquidity that's going to be sloshing around. So, you know, you just have to be disciplined around the risk that you're taking and, and the returns that you expect. I'm curious to get your thoughts around just the broader market structure. Do you feel that liquidity is there? I mean, it is an OTC market, right? So, but that does lend itself to being a more illiquid market. Now, I always find it interesting, liquidity, it's kind of a little bit like on the eye of the beholder, right? So you kind of have liquidity until you don't. It's not something that gradually disappears or increases. You just feel like there's liquidity in the market until one day you don't have it anymore. And that's why it's difficult to sort of say, oh, now, you know, next week we're going to have a liquid period or this week. It's just that at times, because of the market fragility and the market fragility is driven by the amount of systemic leverage, as you as you point out, that is not necessarily with banks anymore, right? It's it's really in the shadow banking market that leads you to, to know that the episodes can be more violent. So what that means is that more asset classes within fixed income get caught into this potential illiquidity and that ultimate regulations that were uh, introduced post-GFC for banks means that the door is just much smaller. So the issues that we saw with the failed auction also indicate that there's just a lot of debt out there that needs to be absorbed by investors, right? So you will have periods of time where you just don't have that liquidity, right? And so that's why I think you're right. I think diversification plays a very important role. I think that if you do want to add leverage to your investment opportunities, then you just have to be really clear as to understanding how the investment process works for that strategy and how they deal with dislocations in the market, right? Because I'll give you an example, if you're investing in a very levered fund or a very levered strategy and you're doing it through a vehicle that has daily pricing, then surely that's going to be an issue and, and daily liquidity then that's just almost an oxymoron, right? That you know that you're going to potentially struggle. So if you're going down the path of more liquid assets or more levered, I think you just have to increase the level of due diligence that you do not only with the strategy, but the vehicle that you're investing in to give you the comfort that you're not going to be the last one there uh, if the market dislocates, like we saw in 08 with you know some of the big funds that were sort of VAR driven. So I think diversification is key. I think that most investors are pushed into taking higher risk, and it can be in a number of forms. Liquidity um, is one. But I also find in talking with clients and, and pension funds that they get carried away as well, right? So I remember talking to one pension fund, and we're having a chat like we are now. And this was after a big uh, drop in, in equities following 2018. And they said, you know, Pilar, we had a target for equity exposure as part of allocation as a pension fund. And we got carried away. So we let that sort of upper limit uh, go higher because market value appreciation took us higher. And we're happy to do that. The problem was that when the market corrected, we didn't have the flexibility to add risk in equities anymore because we were just too long. So that's why I think that you're right. I think the issue is that there's a sense of complacency in, in sort of getting carried away in concentration or in illiquidity, or in leverage. And almost, especially if you're going down the credit curve and not so much rates, you have to be a bit contrarian. You have to leave money on the table 
because otherwise you're not going to be the provider of liquidity that you want to be to take advantage of the dislocations that come in periods of stress. And I think as much as the central banks and the fiscal authorities want us to believe that we're in nirvana, you're going to see periods of stress because there's, there's fragility in the market and there's too much leverage. Really what you've been describing is for asset owners to have a reflection on what really fixed income means to them. What is the defined role of the fixed income piece? Because a lot of the the super funds in Australia still have very large exposures to equity, um, and to that end, the you know the need to have so much um, equity exposure means that they probably shouldn't be taking so much risk on a credit side within the, uh, the their fixed income bucket. Absolutely. So you talked about defenses of fixed income, and I still think that it is a defensive asset class. I mean, especially now if you think about where U.S. Treasury yields are, and if you think about a sell-off, we know that. Treasuries are a safe haven asset. We know that there will be money going into into treasuries, even at these levels. But now, you know, the the 30 year is getting close to 250. So that's relatively reasonable with regards to expecting it to offset some of the potential drawdowns in, in riskier assets. But I'll give you another example, which is just reflective of the challenges that most investors have right now, right? And that and that in Australia, you have as well, right? So I was talking to, again, another pension fund this time in the UK, and they were saying, okay, well, equity markets have gone so a lot, so we want to rebalance, right? We want to take risk down. We want, we, we're a pension fund. We don't need to take a huge amount of risk if we're already close to being fully funded, right? And so they were going to sell equities and said, so we're thinking of selling equities, and we were thinking of buying high yield and emerging markets. Now, of course, you need to understand that just because you're going into fixed income doesn't mean that you're not going into an asset class that's highly correlated with equities. So for them, they're thinking that they're de-risking because they're going into fixed income. And the reality is that if you look at the correlations of emerging markets and high yield with the MSCI World Index over you know three-year rolling periods of time, they can be as high as 70 or 80%. So that's fine. You can choose to do that. It's certainly less risk than equities, but you have to be consistent, right? That there is no free lunch, that you have trade-offs, and that maybe the role of fixed income is still going to be a role that sort of protects capital. If you do believe that, you know, again, uh, over long periods of time, you know, equities and fixed income are going to be negatively correlated, which is, again, a big if because some people are challenging that thesis as well. Um, So, you know, I think fixed income can play a number of roles. I think that the expected returns that you get from fixed income today are, are very low because, frankly, it's about maths, right? Your, your starting level of yield is going to dictate your five-year returns on fixed income, so you're not going to get a lot. And that's why you need alpha, right? That's why you need the extra 100 basis points of alpha today in fixed income. It's huge. It's, it's kind of double what you can get mostly on basic passive yields, right? So I think that is why it's very important to sort of think about it that way and have the flexibility because you you need the alpha to get you to any semblance of returns of fixed income. And you do want to have fixed income because it is still a defensive asset class in relation to other risky parts of your portfolio. But the one thing that I, I would say, and it goes back to the liquidity point, Alex, that you mentioned, is that if you're going to go into fixed income, as I said, because you want to de-risk your allocation or because you want to have a little bit more diversification and you already have a big component of your asset exposure into illiquid assets, whether it be infrastructure or real estate or, or private debt, for example, or private equity, then again, just make sure that if you're going down fixed income, that you're getting liquid fixed income because it's the same thing, right? So you sort of say, okay, I want to go, you know, I have all this chunk of my assets into illiquid assets because I'm a long-term investor, so I can manage my cash flows with the long-term cash flows of these assets. But I'm going to allocate now to to fixed income. And a lot of then investors might end up, again, going into 
illiquid versions of fixed income because they want the higher yields. So I think you need to just be true to yourself, right? And sort of say, why am I buying fixed income? Why do I need the fixed income? And therefore think about the trade-offs because otherwise you're just going to get another flavor of equities or another flavor of liquid assets. And you're still going to call it fixed income, but it doesn't really have the characteristics of fixed income that you originally wanted. You touched on an issue that has become very common, which is people moving down the private credit space, going down the CLO space as well. It's got a lot of leverage inside it. And then they're definitely taking a lot more risk within that part of their, their portfolio. You, you talked many times about alpha. Does that mean that you then need to be much more creative in the way that you try to generate alpha, whether it's relative value trades, different style derivative approaches to, to fixed income? How, how does that come about? You know, where, do you, where are you looking for alpha today? Yeah. So when, you know, as I said, you know, once you introduce a more flexible approach and a, and a global universe, then you need a discipline to take advantage of the allocation decisions that you have to make, right? So you can have a, you have to first decide how much risk you want to take overall, right? So in general, sort of where do you think that paradigm is, right? Which paradigm are you in? Are you in a Goldilocks paradigm where risky assets and, and rates are going to do well? Are you in a risk-off environment or the taper tantrum? And once you have a view, you know, let's say over the next, you know, 12 months, to two years, then you can start thinking about your allocation decisions across a world of fixed income opportunities. Now, it is true that for searching for alpha, you can have more structural approaches. And again, we're long-term investors. So for us, you know, we're happy to be patient investors. But there's also, you know, what I call the hors d'oeuvres, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a menu. And there are certainly a lot of potential tactical opportunities that you can take advantage of because you have punctual dislocations that are uh, driven by maybe technical components, right? Who's buying, who's selling, what the positioning is. And you need to be nimble to take advantage of those opportunities, right? Because those dislocations might not persist for quite some time. So I think that there's, there's, uh, you know, once you go global, there's a couple of things that you have to, is one, you know, being able to have a process that allows you to have that flexibility and take advantage of that nimbly. So you can be dynamic in, in these dislocations that appear, whether it's countries or even curves or asset classes. The second key thing is obviously, you know, security selection does matter because you were talking about a, a period where low rates uh, dominate, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the alpha in terms of higher information ratio sources, things that have higher sharp ratios, security selection is one of the ones that has the highest. So you still want to build a portfolio that can have the bottoms up coming up, right? So you have the ideas coming through from idiosyncratic events that might be driving a credit or, or a rates market. And finally, you just need to have a very strong risk management, right? So when you go global and flexible, you need to make sure that all your risks are wanted um, and known and that, you know, then can, you can deal with a portfolio construction process that protects capital. So again, with low yields and low spreads, the asymmetry of risk return is, is very pronounced as you talked about the convexity, right? So in order to do that, again, that research platform is very important because you want to avoid permanent loss of capital in fixed income. So it's very critical that, that you do have all these components, that you can do your asset allocation, your risk budgeting, your idea generation. But ultimately, you need to make sure that at least when I'm managing money for our clients and, and we at MFS look to invest, we're doing it in the most responsible way possible with regards to your risk management of the, of the portfolio. But just make sure you have the resources to then track the risk that you're taking. Everyone wants to be a long-term investor. You see the reality is as soon as you have any sort of market hiccup, they start to want to trade things and, and move things around as, as they see opportunities. Yeah. Is it also challenging to be a long-term investor in fixed income from a tenure perspective just because of where rates are and this convexity problem and being so low? 
that yes, you want to be long term, but being long term actually may be being shorter tenor on on some of the treasuries that you're actually invested in. Yeah, absolutely. Long term means different things to different people, right? I mean, again, I was talking to to a client, I was telling them we were long term investors, and he said, oh, "I'm long term investor too. I think about things in the twelve month." horizon. I'm like, that's not what I call long-term. So again, it's very relative when somebody says they're long-term, right? What the investment horizon is. I think in fixed income, certainly the approach is very different to equities. You can still obviously be long-term, but we know that the, for example, the benchmark that most people follow, right? They they turn over about 30% a year or one third of it turns over. Uh, So again, if you have mandates that sort of follow relatively closely or less closely some benchmarks, you know that naturally you have a turnover that you're going to have to keep up with or, or keep track of. So that's one thing that is very different from obviously an equities perspective, right? So that's one thing. I think that you you still can be strategic in your long-term investment. So you still can have a strategic view of where you want to be in terms of your, your rates positioning and in terms of your credit positioning. But then you're going to have tactical moves around that strategic view, right? So you might sort of say, I want to be long duration X amount. And that doesn't mean that that in, in very short periods of time, you can sort of deviate from that around that sort of target, basically strategic target. Now, it's easier to think about long-term strategic investment opportunities in credit because you might be going for, for a rising star, for an upgrade, right, for a deleveraging that's going to take time. And then you can patiently hold that security. Sometimes we've owned bonds that we bought at new issue and have seen them mature. But it also means that in certain markets, and I think that's what, this is kind of where you're going to, is that where you do have the liquidity, you know, liquid markets like treasuries or government bonds in general in developed markets, that you should be able to have more tactical views. That's why I think that when I when I think about kind of what we offer or how you can approach you as an investor, think about fixed income, you can still have this long-term views, what I call the stews. You know, you can have a stew cooking for a long time. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the hors d'oeuvres or the aperitifs, things that are tactical in nature so that you can deliver the, the performance. Because I think you have to be disciplined in crystallizing PL, right? So you have to take profits, just like you have to know how to take losses. So in that context, you, you are going to have parts of your portfolio that you're absolutely right, are going to be more short-term in nature. I mean, we've had trades that we implemented with a long-term view that got to our targets in a week. And just because they got to our target in a week doesn't mean that we're going to hold them for a year. If they got to our target, they got to our target. So I think fixed income, actually, that's why I fell in love with fixed income. It's because you have a lot of opportunities to find that alpha. Sometimes you still need to have a strategic view of where you want to go and the bigger picture of paradigm shifts or regime shifts and, and rates and inflation and growth. Yet at the same time, every day, there's a dislocation somewhere. And if you have the team that can give you these ideas, then there are plenty of dislocations that you can take advantage of. And there's certainly periods of severe dispersion and volatility that give you an opportunity to express with conviction an out-of-consensus view. It's a fantastic place to leave it. You've given the investors a lot to think about. So thank you very much for your time today, Pilar. It's been such a pleasure, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.